What has the government delivered? Ooh. Yes, I stand by the statement. Flushies. Who made that noise? He let out a little squeak. Order, order, order. Supplementary. Supplementary question. Kia ora and welcome to Supplementary Question, a news and current affairs podcast produced by News Hub Nation. I'm your host, Finn Hogan. In some ways, it's the only story that really matters. This is my generation's nuclear-free moment. The not-so-slow-moving apocalypse we're all living through. A week on from Canterbury's devastating floods and farmers are facing a long road ahead. And more intense extreme weather events as a result of having a less stable climate. I view the Commission's report as one of the most significant documents I'll receive in my time as Prime Minister. But considering the scale of disaster we face, climate change is often just treated as one of the issues instead of the only issue. Look, this is clearly the greatest challenge that we've ever faced. So, this episode, I spoke to the man in charge of our response. Hello, Minister. Thanks for coming back to me. Finn Hogan from News Hub here. Yeah, no worries. To the local government officials at the coalface of getting those decisions implemented. Uh, kia ora, I'm Richard Hills. I'm chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee. And the academics studying how those in power could more effectively wield it. It's useless just making a declaration of emergency unless that declaration has embedded into it some really tangible solutions. All to answer the question which could quite literally decide the future of our species. Why don't people care more about climate change? We all know the situation isn't good, but I promise you it's much worse than you think. A 1972 study predicted human civilization would collapse by 2040. New research shows we're right on track. Two degrees of warming above pre-industrial average was once the threshold for disaster. Now, according to the latest IPCC UN report, it's our best case scenario. I think our chances as a planet of staying within 1.5 are very thin. Climate extremes once thought to be generations in our future are occurring daily. AM show reporter Lauren Hendrickson, where severe gales are battering Auckland. Don't think of us like that in the south. This is bad for Auckland. Lauren is in the thick of it. When we first arrived on site, I struggled to even stand upright. I couldn't close the car door. We talk about seeing more frequent and more intense extreme weather events as a result of having a less stable climate. And it will get worse. Remember the COVID lag? Well, there's a climate lag too. What we're seeing is only the start. Things will get much worse before they get better. If they get better. Even if we stop emissions cold overnight, there's enough greenhouse gas already in our atmosphere to guarantee a bleak future. Tens of millions will become climate refugees in the coming decades. Low-lying areas like Bangladesh and Miami are already sinking underwater. And even by conservative estimates, sea levels will rise by an entire metre by the end of the century. Speaking of oceans, 99% of coral reefs are now doomed to die due to acidification, taking the majority of the ocean's biodiversity with them. Remember, these aren't worst-case scenarios. Barring some miracle of technology, these are inevitabilities. Large stretches of Earth will soon contain such lethal levels of heat and humidity that humans can't effectively cool themselves down, causing a choking death. Were you about to tune out just then? Perhaps going to switch this podcast to literally anything else that wasn't talking about the painful deaths of thousands of people? Well, who can blame you? 
The reality of climate change is so complex, so overwhelming and often so depressing, even the most passionate among us have dark nights of the soul. So every now and then I kind of think, we're not, we're not going to do this, are we? We're, yeah. just, we're just not up to it. That's Climate Change Minister James Shaw, who says the kind of apocalyptic language often used to impress the urgency of climate change is counterproductive. My own team has been guilty of this in the past. The language that we use um, can leave people feeling powerless uh, because they, you know, we talk about the problem, but we don't talk about the solution. And so what happens is people go, oh, this is just you know, catastrophic. Uh, and then they just want to hide under their duvet. And so it's not that they don't care, it's that they kind of feel like there are, there are no avenues that they can go down that would actually result in any kind of meaningful change. Instead, it's about breaking the great doom monolith of climate change into digestible pieces. One of the things I learned a few years ago uh, was to stop talking about public transport and to start talking about buses and trains. Um, and that's because the human brain can see in the mind's eye a bus and a train, but it can't see a public transport. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. And and so it, so my language has changed from kind of the abstract to the concrete mm. um, and to the specific. I could talk about renewable energy or I could talk about solar panels and hydrogen and wind turbines. And people kind of respond to that at an emotional level because they're like, yes, and I want some for my roof. Someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the right language used to convey these issues is David Hall from AUT's Policy Lab. Hello, testing, testing. Yep, I can hear myself. He says attempts by activists and journalists to frighten their audience into action is at best preaching to the converted and at worst... People also reject it because they find it manipulative. They feel that people are, are trying to manipulate them. And, and also it doesn't seem to work with political conservatives and as we all know, um, you know the, the 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 rates of climate denial have tended to predominate on um, you know in conservative parties and political conservative parties. And so, you know, if if you really want to drive people and motivate people, um, and you want to speak to the people who are least motivated now, it's not clear that these appeals to fear are the right way of doing it. But on the other hand, David acknowledges there is still a lack of knowledge about just how bad things are going to get. Yeah, I think people have an inkling of the negative impacts which are coming our way. I, I don't think people grasp the full detail. I think people just aren't, aren't ready to do so. And I mean, I speak for myself. I mean, I find it painful and it's disturbing and it's upsetting. <laughs> and that just activates our denial mechanisms and we think about other things and we think it's too hard and we think it's too difficult. And that makes sense. Why would anyone voluntarily spend time thinking about subjects this dark? Except you, obviously, dear listener. What can I do as an individual person? You start to rationalise your way out of it. There's a psychologist called Robert Gifford who's got a really nice phrase, uh, the, the dragons of inaction. He talks about these mental processes which um, bring our denial up when we're faced with the the horrors of climate change and, and, and it just means that we put it out of mind and we rationalise our way out of it. Gifford identifies dozens of psychological dragons in his academic writing, but four of the largest and most relatable are the ancient brain. Our brain has evolved to deal with very local issues like, is there danger nearby? Is there food in that tree? Meaning we literally can't effectively conceive of a catastrophe on the scale of climate change. Environmental numbness. 
meaning humans generally only consider the aspects of the environment that directly affect them in their daily life. Melting ice caps are hard to keep top of mind when basically no one lives on them. Techno salvation. I like to call this the smart people in the white coats will sort it out mentality. You know, the hope someone, somewhere, will throw enough money and genius at climate to miraculously reverse the course we're on. I hate to break it to you, there's no signs of that happening yet. Our sea levels have risen by 18 centimetres in the last 100 years. And days with very high or extreme fire danger are projected to increase by 70% by 2040. Taken together, the 33 dragons of inaction paint a picture of climate change as a problem uniquely adapted to take advantage of our psychological blind spots. So, the obvious question, what can we do? This cuts to that problem with using fear as a, as a motivation. I think, I think it's necessary because we need to understand those negative impacts and we need to absorb them. But we're only able to do that really, I think, if someone's showing us the exit door. And, you know, one of the definitions of dread is that it's fear without a target. It just is a directionless sense of horror and we don't know where to go. Whereas true fear, we know exactly what's scaring us and we know which way to run or how to respond. David points to things like New Zealand declaring a climate emergency as well-intentioned but fundamentally unhelpful. Yes, you know, an emergency is one way to talk about it and, and that we'll, we will continue talking about it in those terms. Um, but we need to say it is an emergency and so therefore these are the things you can do, these are the things we can do as a society, these are the things you can do as an individual and we need to just keep those two running together. It's useless just making a declaration of emergency unless that declaration has embedded into it some really tangible solutions that um, we all can understand are going to help us out of this problem. Remember in a previous episode when we discussed the futility of fighting conspiracy theories with blunt logic? David says whacking people around the head with dire facts when it comes to climate won't get us far. I think the key thing is really that you, we need to connect the climate change issue to people's values, their concerns, what they're worried about, um, and really connect climate change to those local issues that people are seeing. Um, you know, people are really worried about the economy, their families, safety, security. Um, and that needs to be acknowledged and climate change can't be put in front of it. But at the same time, you can really help to understand the interconnections between these issues as well. So, to a libertarian, climate change response could be framed as a protection of land rights by ensuring the land stays habitable. While to a progressive, climate response could mean a healthier and more equitable relationship with our natural world. We need to focus on the upside of climate change because a lot of the changes that we need to make have real positive and immediate effects. There's a really lovely phrase, multi-solving, where you know you can solve climate change at the same time as you solve all of these other issues which might be of greater immediate immediacy and urgency for people. We also just need to diversify our messaging and just speak to the particular audiences that we're wanting to persuade. Um, you know, if we talk, you know, political progressives, for instance, you know, it's it's the nature of progressives to want change and to want disruption and to have, you know, to create a brave new world, but that's just never going to work for someone who's a political conservative. And so we need to find ways to, you know, argue for the same outcome, but in a way that other people can understand and that makes sense to them. 
The man at the coalface of actually having these conversations is Richard Hills. Kia ora, I'm Richard Hills. I'm an Auckland councillor and the chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee. And he's fairly busy. I kind of saw through the Te Tārikia Tāwhiri, Auckland's climate plan, uh, which is the climate plan for Auckland, not just Auckland Council, so we had a whole lot of stakeholders and community, and that um, we got unanimous from all 21 of us around um, the table and two members of the Independent Māori Statutory Board supporting the climate plan, which includes halving our emissions by 2030, um, net zero by 2050, a whole lot of cool um, climate actions through that, unanimously got support for a climate emergency. Um, It's pretty big stuff. Like David, Richard says the apocalyptic frame is counterproductive. I very much, when I became the chair of the Environment and Climate Change Committee, I was all about like, I'm never going to talk about disasters because it scares everyone. And then suddenly we had the fires in Australia, turn the sky red. We had floods, uh, you know, record floods. And then we had a pandemic, which could be related to climate change. So <laughs> so there's like important to talk about those things, but I think uh, largely people, yeah, do get scared off. And also with, you know, depression, anxiety, younger people just like, oh my God, the world is literally screwed. So I don't want to even look at it. It's important to, to once again, talk about those co-benefits. There's that multi-solving again. You know, I always say to people if, who are kind of anti-climate change and uh, um initiatives i'm like well if we make the air cleaner and we make you know less flooding and we make you know it a nicer place to be that we can connect more and climate change wasn't an issue like that would still be a good thing to do so i think it's trying to make people bring people down to like hey you know electric buses and cycling and walking will make it easier to get around but it also make the air cleaner make the water quality better but also has this massive effect on climate change so it's trying to like bring it back down to like what you know, having a really good city that is climate friendly can actually facilitate from everything that is not necessarily just climate. And like David, while he's an optimist, Richard is clear-eyed about the scale of the challenges we face. We actually um, released some uh, maps which show the potential areas for erosion over the next 30, 50, 100 years. And obviously I had a lot of people contacting me like, does that mean, like, it says half my property is going to be gone. The maps Richard discusses are available from the council website, and they do make for sobering reading. Depending on actions taken now, the very shape of our country could be different within decades. This is kind of a warning of if you're going to build or redevelop or put new apartments on this land, it needs extra work. You know, what are we looking at to protect the space, uh, stabilise it? Um, Yeah, so people get freaked out and then assume council's going to fix it. It's like, we have over 3,000 kilometres of coastline in Tamaki Makoto, and we as a council, meaning the public, we cannot afford to protect private property. We just, there, and there isn't going to be a magical seawall that we can put a, you know, a moat around the city. So people really need to start thinking like, okay, this is how it's going to change. Shaw says it's that decade-long consideration that's at the heart of his work in government. Because what we're talking about here is a multi-decade program of change to every aspect of our economy and society. Um, and if you're going to hold together essentially a policy program to survive multiple changes of government you know big changes in the economy continue to you know take climate action even while there's a global pandemic on or whatever the next financial crisis is and that kind of stuff you have to have a level of consensus across society uh, to do that otherwise you know we could take massive radical action 
uh, in a short period of time and then the next lot will come along and reverse it all out and then you're really stuffed. And that actually is the pattern of the last 30 years. The pattern being one party dismantles the previous one's decisions in order to make their own policy. Shaw says while progressives might critique him for being an incrementalist, that's the only way to get things done. Actually, you need consistency. So, so that's my argument for sort of taking the course of action that we have taken. At the same time, you know, the science is really clear that we need to, you know, have some pretty radical action in quite a short <laughs> yes. time. But that's why we created the Climate Change Commission. You know, the idea that there's a politically neutral body of, you know, scientists and economists who can look at that and go, this is what is required if we are to stay within that boundary of one and a half degrees of global warming. Uh, and then every politician, no matter where they sit on the political spectrum, can look at that and go, well, those guys are the experts. I guess we're just going to have to do it then. And we have no choice but to get it done now. The latest UN report was described by scientists as a code red for humanity. An alarm bell that's been ringing for decades, but is now growing increasingly loud. But despite this, the people you'd expect to be most pessimistic are increasingly hopeful. I never get down, weirdly enough. I just sort of feel like, actually, I can see the green shoots of a renewal uh, and, and a change. And it's going to take time and it's going to take all of us and it's going to take everything that we've got. But I think we're going to get there. It's twofold. I'm like, if I think how hard it was maybe four years ago when I first got onto the council, like getting these kind of initiatives in, and the fact that now people, the most opposition I get is like, why are we not doing more? I'm like, well, that's pretty telling that there's been a massive shift. The honest thing is, is that I feel more optimistic about this than I ever have in the 20 odd years that I've been researching and understanding and thinking about this issue. In November, all eyes will be on Glasgow for the 2021 United Nations Climate Change Conference, which many scientists and activists say represents the world's last, best chance to stop runaway climate change. Perhaps more than any international summit in our time, the decisions made there will decide the course of history. This supplementary question was brought to you by News Hub Nation with help from the New Zealand On Air Platinum Fund. Check out News Hub Nation page at newshub.co.nz for more of our content. Listen to our full show in podcast form each week.